The following talk was originally podcast on June 5th, 2020. Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Austin, Texas. Last week I described the Buddha as a champion of equal opportunities for women. Primarily, we have only to look within the Sangha, the monastic community created by the Buddha, to discover the particulars of his social values. We find there, for instance, an absence of caste or class and little hierarchy. We also find great care giving to protecting the nuns' sangha from the vulnerabilities of women in a patriarchal society. The early texts tell us that the nuns' sangha was first established at the instigation of his aunt, Mahapajapati, who is also said to have raised him from infancy after his own mother passed away. The Buddha had returned to his home shortly after his awakening and had gained many devout disciples from his own family and among his country folk. Sometime later, Mahapajapati and a large group of women found the Buddha desirous of becoming nuns, and his aunt requested ordination from him. It should be noted that the Buddha never refused to found a nun's sangha. He simply puts Mahapajapati off with the words, Don't, Don't ask, ask that. that. However, the Buddha's attendant, Ananda, interceded on her behalf and elicited from him the famous statement that the women's capabilities for attainment and awakening were equivalent to men's. Finally, the Buddha relents. In East Asia, Ananda has become a kind of hero for women. But the Buddha places eight conditions on nuns' ordination, called the weighty factors, Garudhamma, which, I warn, are a bit shocking in their language. 1. A, a nun, nun who has been, been ordained, ordained, even for a hundred years, must greet respectfully, rise up from her seat, salute with joined palms, do proper homage to a monk ordained but that day. The convention already observed among monks was that a more recently ordained monk would show this kind of respect to an earlier ordained monk. 2. A nun must not spend the rains in a residence where there are no monks. Although nuns live separately from the monks, they must affiliate with a community of monks from July to October, the rainy season in India. 3. Every half month a nun should desire two things from the monk's sangha, the asking as to the date of the uposata day and the coming for the exhortation. The monks serve, in other words, as a calendar for the nuns, calculating events according to lunar phases. 4. After the rains, 
a nun must invite before both sanghas in respect of three matters, namely what it was seen, what was heard, what was suspected. This is a yearly procedure already established among monks, whereby each monk in turn invites all the other monks to provide constructive criticism, that is, admonishment. Each nun will have to invite not only all nuns, but also all affiliated monks. 5. A nun offending against an important rule must undergo manatta discipline for half a month before both sanghas. There's a procedure when a monk violates any of a certain set of precepts that requires discussion by the whole community of monks. In the case of the nuns, the community of nuns must likewise meet, but also the affiliated community of monks. 6. When, as a probationer, she has trained in the six rules for two years, she should seek higher ordination from both sanghas. A sangha of monks can ordain a new monk. A sangha of nuns can ordain a new nun. But then the affiliated monks must also approve. 7. A monk must not be abused or reviled in any way by a nun. Actually, this rule is only rhetorical since neither monks nor nuns are permitted to abuse or revile anyone anyway. 8. From today, admonishing of monks by nuns is forbidden. Admonishing of nuns by monks is not forbidden. Monks have an obligation to correct inappropriate behavior of other monastics, but nuns are not permitted to correct monks. This is the final condition. The question for us is, why, when the Buddha quite explicitly made caste irrelevant to monastic life and then demonstrated such encouragement and support for women's practice, would the Buddha introduce this gender bias? A second question is why he would use such dramatic language in this passage, language that seems to kind of rub it in. Mahapajapati agrees to these conditions and the nun sangha is established with the Buddha's aunt as the first nun and lives under these conditions to this day. But that is not the end of the story. It ends with the Buddha expressing grave concern about his decision. If, Ananda, women had not obtained the going forth from home into homelessness in the Dharma and discipline proclaimed by the truth finder, the Dharma would have lasted long. The true Dharma would have endured for a thousand years. But because women have gone forth in the Dharma and discipline proclaimed by the truth finder, now the Dharma will not last long. The true Dharma will endure only for 500 years. Even Ananda, as those households which have many women and few men, easily fall prey to robbers, to pot thieves, in whatever Dharma and discipline women obtain the going forth, that dharma will not last long, even as when the disease known as white bones, a kind of mildew, attacks a whole field of rice, that field of rice does not last long. 
Even so, in whatever dharma and discipline women obtain the going forth, that dharma will not last long. Even as when the disease known as red rust attacks a whole field of sugarcane, that field of sugarcane will not last long. Even so, in whatever dharma and discipline women obtain the going forth, that dharma will not last long. Even as a man looking forward may build a dike to a great reservoir so that the water may not overflow, even so were the eight weighty factors for the nuns laid down by me, looking forward not to be transgressed during their lives. This envisions the slow deterioration of the Buddhist movement. Although the condition for this deterioration is identified as allowing women to ordain into the Sangha, how or why deterioration proceeds is left obscure. This is probably related to the question of the Buddha's reluctance in the first place. It's also unclear to me whether or not the last line of the last passage says that through the weighty factors, the problem has been fixed. That is, that the envisioned early demise of the Buddhist movement will thereby be averted. To understand what is going on with this story, we need to understand its cultural context. In particular, we need to understand the status of women in Buddha's India. India seems to have been on a long trajectory of increasing patriarchy before and after the time of the Buddha. In early Vedic India, women apparently enjoyed a status considerably more equal to men. In the egregiously patriarchal practice of sati, the self-immolation of widows on their deceased husbands' funeral pyres, would still not be known in India until several hundred years after the Buddha. By the Buddha's time, India had become a highly stratified society in which each person was born into a social caste with no prospect of upward mobility. Spiritual practice and education were widely considered to be masculine pursuits. Furthermore, women were generally subject in all stages of life to masculine authority. The last point is described, for instance, in the following passage from an ancient Indian text, The Laws of Manu. By, by a girl, by a young woman, or even by an aged one, nothing must be done independently, even in her own house. In childhood, a female must be subject to her father. In youth, to her husband, when her lord is dead, to her sons, a woman must never be independent. Women who were nonetheless independent of masculine authority, by choice or happenstance, were commonly regarded as loose women or as prostitutes. But apparently even prostitutes could regain much of their status and security by becoming official wards of the male-administered villages where they offered their services. Now, the monastic sangha stands in most ways apart from the broader community, engineered as a kind of ideal society and built on values and practices that will often seem obscure to the general society. 
At the same time, it's imperative that the Sangha live in harmony with the general society, for it is fragilely dependent on lay donors for all of its material needs and is, moreover, intent on exerting a civilizing influence on that society. The Buddha was much engaged in maintaining that harmony alongside the integrity of his teachings. In fact, the origin stories of the monastic rules revealed that most of them originated in feedback from the lay community about what they regarded as inappropriate behavior of monks and nuns. For instance, the three-month rains retreat of the Buddhist monastic was initially instituted in response to lay pressure, not in response to monastic needs, yet came to serve monastic practice. As long as they did not violate essential principles, the Buddha was willing to conform to the design-a-monk expectations of the general society to clothe the Sangha in respectability. The Buddha was very pragmatic. Now, the establishment of a sustainable monk sangha presented relatively few great challenges. Wandering mendicants were already very common in India in masculine form, and their aspirations were respected by the general society, at least enough for people to offer alms to help sustain them. The establishment of the nun sangha would prove far more challenging. There was apparently little in the way of a tradition of women among the ranks of wandering mendicants, except for recently the Jain experiment with nuns ordination, which seemed not to be working out so well due to a decay of morals, as Dhamma Vihari puts it stemming from mingling monks and nuns to an extent that they were often finding each other far more interesting than sitting under a tree following the breath. However, the main concern for the Buddha would have been that a public that was already quite supportive of monks would be less supportive or even hostile with regard to the nuns and would consequently make it difficult for the nuns to receive adequate alms to support their practice. For the nuns would be widely regarded as incapable of spiritual progress or worse, be denigrated as loose women and thereby worthy of support only for the wrong reasons and at the cost of their safety. Unlike the uniform absorption of all castes into the, the Sangha, which no doubt must have also occasionally raised lay eyebrows, the presence of two genders in the Sangha could not be hidden from daily awareness under uniform attire and bald heads. My point is that this is the core of the problem that this story of the initiation of the nun Sangha addresses. The threat is that the nuns' sangha would have fit poorly into the social norms of patriarchal India, that it would have been difficult for the nuns to receive the lay support already enjoyed by the monks, and that the reputation of the sangha and sasana as a whole would be threatened. The remedy was to present the appearance of conformity to social norms. The real intention was to promote not denigrate the interests of women, all the while preserving the Dharma. 
This understanding immediately explains the Buddha's reluctance to begin ordaining women, at least until he had a viable plan in place, as well as his expectation that doing so might well weaken the Sangha and the Sasana. Although the similes about red rust and so on make use of some strong negative imagery for the deterioration of the Buddhist movement, I think it's very rash indeed to see blatant misogyny in this language, as if it were saying that women are like pot thieves, white bones, or red rust. In fact, the first simile makes it clear that the threat described comes from without, but the presence of nuns represents a secondary condition of vulnerability rather than the most direct cause of the problem, since the nuns certainly correspond to the many women in the victimized household. What this passage clearly does say is that, all things considered, expanding the Sangha to include women has the potential to set off a gradual deterioration of the Dharma due to external cultural factors not so friendly to women. Given that great cost, it is no wonder that the Buddha would be hesitant to take the risk to include women into the Sangha. His boldness in allowing the value he placed in women's practice to override this grave concern is actually to be commended. What is still obscure is how the weighty factors might help avert this problem. Wanting to offer to women the greatest gift he could give, the opportunity to learn, practice, and live the Dharma as members of the monastic Sangha, he would have to first provide for the nuns education and training to bring them up to the level of the monks, as well as to provide safety. Women would, in general, have had less experience in ascetic life and less opportunity for formal education than the monks. Second, the Buddha would have to avoid the public impression that the nuns were loose women by publicly putting them under masculine authority. The conditions that the Buddha or his heirs stipulated for nuns accomplished this by establishing a requisite structure of authority that primarily in the public eye makes nuns dependent on the community of monks. The conditions serve first and foremost a public relations function, which also accounts for the sharp and dramatic language of this passage, unmistakably intended for public, not monastic consumption. When we consider how these conditions were actually observed in the early Sangha, we can see that they had far more bark than bite. In fact, if we read how these conditions are reflected in the official nun's Pati Moka, we find the typical dry language of that text that only monastics would know of. Moreover, there is little in the weighty factors in the way of an actual power structure. While the nuns may ordain other nuns, a group of monks must concur, and should a nun be sanctioned for a serious disciplinary infraction, a group of monks must agree with the terms of the sanctions. But the requirements for these are largely specified in the Winia in any case. For most nuns, 
This intrusion of masculine authority is a rare or even once-in-a-lifetime matter. Otherwise, monks have no authority at all to tell nuns what to do. Moreover, should a nun's community find the local community of monks uncooperative or obstructive in some way, they are free to align themselves with a more agreeable community of monks. Moreover, if a nun breaks any of the weighty rules, for instance, by daring to admonish a monk, the violation is atoned simply by acknowledging the transgression to another nun. That's it. These rules set up a partial dependency of the nun's community on the monk's community with regard to teaching and training, particularly during the time of the three-month yearly rains retreat. This can be viewed primarily as an obligation of the monks to the nuns, as much as an assertion of authority. We've already seen the kindness of the Buddha and the early monks' sangha in ensuring the safety of the nuns and in keeping the monks and nuns from falling into traditional gender roles. It was likewise important that the structures of authority set up in the weighty factors carry little real power and in particular not become abusive. The primary relationship between the two sanghas in this regard was the periodic admonishment, basically a pep or dharma talk. Hidden in the winia is the careful regulation of this relationship. For instance, an admonishing monk cannot show up among the nuns in the late hours and must have certain qualifications described as follows. A monk who is entrusted to preside over the welfare should conform to perfect standards of moral virtue. He should also possess a thorough knowledge of the teaching of the Master and know well the complete code of Patimokkha, covering both the monks and the nuns. He should be of pleasant disposition, mature in years, and acceptable to the nuns and above all, should in no way have been involved in a serious offense with the nun. Not just any monk could show up and hold forth before the nuns. Although one can imagine means by which an ill-disposed monk sangha might still use the weighty factors to oppress a nun sangha, most of which probably have been tried. In practical terms, the system that was set up is primarily one of service of the monks to the nuns in providing protection and training. It should also be pointed out that the application of the first weighty factor, whereby nuns must show respect to monks, was adjusted in the Winia after an incident involving some flirtatious monks who were neither behaving like monks nor respecting these nuns as nuns. After these nuns refused to show respect to the monks, the matter was brought to the Buddha's attention, and the Buddha took the nun's side. This brings us back to the question of who was responsible for the eight conditions on nuns' ordination, the Buddha or a later generation of Sangha teachers. As mentioned, various inconsistencies call into question the account in which the Buddha proclaimed the weighty factors as reported. The account of their function offered here concerning the well-intentioned purpose of the weighty factors provides some possible insight into the story of their actual origin. 
it seems to me that the bark of the weighty factors may not have been necessary while the Buddha was still alive. The glow of his own towering personal stature would have extended to the whole Sangha, and the nuns would have been publicly regarded as daughters of the Buddha, and therefore already under masculine authority, just as the monks would have been regarded as sons of the Buddha. Still, certain of these rules might have been introduced piecemeal by the Buddha as useful. Certainly, he would have set up some kinds of arrangements for the very early nuns to receive instruction from the more experienced and educated monks, and for nuns initially to receive ordination directly from monks. Possibly, the first weighty factor regarding nuns bowing to monks was introduced early on, since this rule was apparently directly borrowed from the Jains, has a story of subsequent modification, and is justified in the scriptures separately from the origin story of the weighty factors, as necessary because other sects follow this rule, which is already indicative of the social pressure at work here. However, at the Buddha's death, his personal authority would have disappeared, and at that point, all the weighty factors, but more importantly, a dramatic formulation of their contents for popular consumption, would have become necessary. I suggest that the origin story we have for the weighty factors and the establishment of the nun sangha was composed only after the Buddha's death and attributed back to the Buddha in order to put weight into the weighty factors. The composition of the story seems to have been badly bungled with regard to its consistency with other events in the life of the Buddha. We see that a story that seems misogynistic to the outsider, in fact, is expressive of purest motives when properly placed in its cultural context. The Buddha thereby clothed the nuns' sangha in respectability according to the standards of the society in which he lived. This strategy gained room for the Sangha to become the ideal society within, with minimal interference from the faulty society without. In the ideal society, the same opportunity for practice was secured for women as for men. In that cultural context, this was a great accomplishment. Unfortunately, in modern societies, these clothes of respectability have a poor fit and they sometimes offend. The monastic rules have historically always bent to changing climate, geography, technology, and society. The Sangha would not have survived if this were not the case. At our time and place in history, it's imperative that any semblance of gender inequality, symbolic or otherwise, be removed in a Buddhism that thrives in a modern culture. I've said nothing about the politics of how to get there from here, about untangling the force of ancient traditions and maintaining harmony and respect among conservative and liberal elements in these traditions with regard to women's equality, about how to introduce or reintroduce full ordination for women in those traditions that lack it. It may take patience, but the necessary adaption will certainly happen. I hope I have shown for now that the Buddha is on our side. Whatever clothes we wear 
the project of realizing full equality for women within Buddhism is totally in accord with the Buddha's original pure intentions, intentions which must make the most feminist in the Buddhist community smile. Wait, wait, I have to tell listeners about a series of 10 upcoming podcasts beginning June 19th. I plan to provide a broad introduction to Buddhism called Mindfulness Where Dharma Meets Practice, which will highlight the role of mindfulness in the range of Buddhist practice and understanding. These talks are based, like my other talks, almost exclusively on earliest Buddhist texts, which is as close as we can determine what the Buddha actually taught. These talks will provide a concise and accessible introduction for new students of Buddhism, but may also carry some surprises for advanced students. The series of podcasts will be based on my introductory textbook of the same name, Mindfulness Where Dharma Meets Practice. A parallel video course can also be found on YouTube. Links to all of these resources can be found on my website, bhikkhuchintita.wordpress.com. That is my name, bhikkhuchintita, written as one word, dot wordpress.com. As always, please feel free to contact me with questions at bhikkhu.chintita at gmail.com. I hope you'll be able to join us for these 10 short but highly informative talks.